0: Well, Welcome. Good morning. It's so great to be here with you this morning. Um, If you're a guest with us again, I'm Pastor Jamie and uh, we are in the middle of, not in the middle, we're in the beginning of a new sermon series we started last week called The God I Wish You Knew. This series is all about me trying to tell you about the God I know and love, and to, to explain him to you a little bit, to help you understand who he is, and to look into the scripture, and to see who is this God that we come and worship? Who is this God that we serve? And uh, last week we started with God is all the time, uh, let's do that, let's do this right, okay? God is good, all and all the time, God is good. even when there's bombs blowing up, God is good, Amen. Even, even when life is, is, is scary, God is good. Even when there's tragedy in our lives, God is good all the time. The goodness of God is not diminished by the badness of our world. Amen? So and we also talked about amen. Amen means we agree. And that's a kind of a churchy thing that we do, but we're just going to hang on to it because it's, it's unique to us. So if you're, a, if you're exploring who God is or you're new to church... You don't have to say it, but it's one of the things we do around here. We just say amen, because I agree with that. So we'll just jump in on that, all right? All right, there you go. Thank you for—that was Rob. I lost you in—you know, the theatrical lighting in here is just intense. All right, so uh, I've got to get back to my notes, right? Here we go. Uh, You know, being lead pastor here is not all fun and games, It is not all uh, prayer meetings and closed-door Bible studies where I get to go into my lofty theological world. It's actually a very dangerous, dangerous job. You're all like, why? Yeah. Because every week I get up here and I speak. And every time I speak, words come out of my mouth and the meaning of those words float in the air and then I can't take them back. There's nothing I could do to reach out there and grab them. They go out there and they float in the air and then you guys all reach out and you grab them and you assign meaning to them. And the the hazard is, is that I will be misunderstood and uh, judged and maybe even violently, okay? From time to time, people will be like, oh, that guy. Happens all the time. Being misunderstood, it's one of the greatest hazards of being a pastor. It happens all the time. How many of you have ever been misunderstood? Those of you who didn't raise your hand, I think I just misunderstood you. Did (laughs) you? We all get misunderstood, right? Apparently, I I was researching this this last week, and it turns out that cake decorators seem to have a harder time of it than other people. Um, So I just wanted to show you a couple of these. This first person um, really... I I just got to put it up here any second now. I don't know if I need to say much about this, but... So when you order a cake, you fill out a form with what you want to put on it. So good job, cake decorator, right? olympic rings and then this one here this one's really good nut allergy happy birthday peter worse right and then siri actually siri who who knows siri here anybody know siri yeah siri gets in on this one check this out call me an ambulance from now on i will call you an ambulance okay thank you siri yes have you ever been misunderstood? Um, It might be something you said, it might be something you did, it might be something you taught, um, and people take it and they run with it it and it just comes out all wrong. I think God gets misunderstood sometimes. Actually, I think God gets understood a lot. But here's the cool thing about misunderstandings. If you've got somebody around who knows you well, they can correct the misunderstanding, right? It can correct the misunderstanding. It happens all the time. I've had people come to me and said, well, this person said this this, and this this to me and it really hurt my feelings. And I can say to them, you know what? I, I know that person. And I, I trust that person. And I know that person would not intentionally harm you. And they probably didn't mean that. My wife does this for me all the time, for many of you, I'm sure. You know, you come to, I wish your, your husband just so, hard. and she's like, no, Jamie's not like that. That's not, that's not what Jamie intended. That's not his heart. When you're misunderstood it's nice to have somebody around who knows you well who has your back and can correct those misunderstandings and i think god is misunderstood a whole lot but fortunately for god fortunately for god isn't that weird thing to say dale he's looking at me like who says fortunately for god fortunately for god there is somebody who knows him really well really really well and his name is jesus in fact jesus knows his knows god so well that he says this, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you, know, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. Jesus is God's self-portrait. So in this series, like I said, our goal is to help you know and love the God I wish you knew, the God that I know and love. We want to teach you about him. And so how we're going to do that is that anytime we have questions about who God is, anytime we have a misunderstanding about who God is or what his actions are in the world, we correct back to who? Jesus. Correct back to Jesus. When you have questions about when you're reading the Bible, you're reading in the Old Testament, and you get into some muddled ground in the book of Leviticus, and you're like sacrificing things, and there's fire, and I don't know what to do with this. Are we still supposed to do it? Correct back to Jesus. Just flip the pages and go back to the Gospels and look at Jesus. How did Jesus live? How did Jesus think? So what kind of God did Jesus reveal? Last week, we said that God is good. This week, we're going to look at Jesus revealing God as a father. Today's big idea is this, the God I wish you knew is an extravagant father who loves us deeply, cares for us consistently, and wants to be close to you. I'll say that again. The God that Jesus revealed is an extravagant father who loves us deeply, cares for us constantly, and wants to be close to you. God is a father. And that is a difficult, difficult subject for many of us because we live in a world where the image of a father is very broken and tarnished. We've been hurt by many fathers. So before we dive in, I want to address this important issue. First, I want to ask you, let God be your image or model of fatherhood. Let God be your model of fatherhood. Many of us have had fathers who were absent, they were abusive, or they were harsh, If you had a bad dad, the idea that God is your father may not be very comforting. I knew a a pastor once who I was praying with with her and a couple of other pastors and I prayed to God, my father. I said, our father, uh, or father, come and do this, or father, please be present in this situation. And she came to me afterward and pulled me aside and says, I need to ask you to stop praying to God as your father because I find it offensive. And I mean, I was like completely confused by this, obviously, like What? And she goes, my father was this and he was bad and he hurt me. And and every time you pray to God, our father, I think about how my father hurt me. I think about how, how fathers are bad. And I know that it's offensive to me and it's offensive to many people in our world. So as a church, we need to stop praying to God, our father. And I was like, uh, uh, that's not good. I understand that you have experienced fatherhood negatively. I understand that you've been hurt by fathers. I get it. I had a father who, when I was a kid, struggled to show me appropriate affection when I did something well or when I did something poorly. I lived always on the edge of wondering, hey, did I do it right? Did I do good enough? And it messed up my image of God as a father because I'm always working to try to get his approval, always working to try to get his attention. But God is not like that. The idea of God as a father can create mixed emotions in us. And I know it does for many of you. What can we do about that? We can redefine our image of Father. I think we need to redefine Father and let God be the model. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians three fourteen through 15. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. What Paul is saving here is that God is the first dad, the very first dad. The very first dad in all of existence. Our idea of father should come from God and not from our earthly fathers. Because he was father first. He was father to Adam, who was father to so and, so and so. And it goes on and on and on and on. But God is the prototype father. The very first father. So what we want to do is to not mimic our earthly fathers, but mimic our heavenly father. Look at our heavenly father for our ideal of what a father is. So I'm asking you this morning to lay aside your broken notions of what fatherhood is, your hurts and your pains over your dad, to take those and to set them on a table. I'm not saying to ignore them. I'm not saying that they're not important, but I'm asking you to set them down for a moment and to look at a different model of who father could be and to correct back to Jesus and to let Jesus inform us about our understanding of who the father is, who God our father is. The second thing I want to talk about real quickly before we dive in is this, is that Jesus had actually a really unique relationship with God the Father because he is the Son of God. We have in the Bible described for us this three-part, this three-in-one God thing, which is really confusing. We use a word called Trinity to describe it. It's not in the Bible anywhere, but it's just a descriptive word to help us understand that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There are three parts to him. Here's how Jesus would express it. In John 14, says in, 7, he says this, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And then John 14, 9, it says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then John 14, 11, it says, I and the Father are one, and the Father is in me. I and the Father are one. It's this description of these two are the same, but they are entirely different. At least 40 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as his Father, revealing the unique relationship of God to the Son. And this rela- it's this relationship that makes Jesus the one that we listen to about God. And then it's <clears throat> sorry. And there is so much in the Gospels about this that we could do a whole series, really, on fatherhood. We could just talk about fatherhood for months on end, because the Gospels point back to God as the Father so many times. But we're going to stick with this today. Uh, today we're just going to look at three things I like threes. I think threes are pleasing. You guys ever find that pleasing? You know, it's like I get three of something. I'm like, oh, this is lovely. If you get four, I got to eat one, right? Like you give me 4 MMs, I got to eat one. Three is nice. Threes are nice and pastors like threes. So we're going to look at just three different things. We're going to look at how Jesus reveals the father in his prayers. We're going to look at Jesus, how how Jesus reveals the father in his teachings. And we're going to look at how Jesus reveals the father in his story. So the first one in prayer. In prayer, Jesus shows us that we are children talking to the father. When Jesus prayed, he always, always said, God, my Father, or our Father. In fact, there was only in all of the Gospels, all four Gospels, every time Jesus prayed, with the exception of once, he says God as his Father. He uses, addresses God as Father. And the one other time that he prays and he doesn't address God as his Father, he had just addressed him in a prayer a moment before, and it's when he's on the cross. First he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And then just before he dies, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time he doesn't address God as his father. Even in his darkest moments, even in the, the moments before his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, he is in his desperate hours. He knows what's coming and he says this in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba, Father. It's like Papa. It's this intimate term of, 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 of Father. It's like Daddy. If you're a little, it's like a, my, when, when Amelia comes up to me, she says, Daddy. And like this smile on her face, and it's just this affection and love and trust that's behind it. This is the term that Jesus talks about God with. Abba, Father. And even when he's dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And then as he dies, he calls out in a loud voice. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathes his last. To his dying breath, Jesus called God his Father. He ran to him in prayer instead of running from him. And that's kind of the trouble I see nowadays, is that often when we get into tough spots, when we see life is hard, when we feel hurt inside, we feel hurt by somebody else or we feel hurt by God, we run from God. We don't run to him. We run away from God. We stop coming to church. We stop engaging in worship. We stop going to small groups. We stop reading our Bibles. We turn and we run away from God. And yet what we see Jesus modeling here is that he turns and runs to God. Amelia recently learned to ride her bicycle. It was an amazing thing. She had one of those Strider bikes, you know, those Strider bikes that have no pedals. So she'd cruise around that thing all day long. And then we're like, well, hey, let's try to skip the training wheels and put her on a bicycle. So she hops on the bicycle and off she goes. Amazing. It was wonderful. Very, very little bit, just a little bit of crying here and there. But one of the times that she did fall, I was outside and I was watching her, and she's like, "Daddy, watch me!" She goes cruising past me, and then she falls, and there's you know, there's legs and arms and bicycles everywhere, and I was, I was like, "Oh no, she fell!" And she watches, and she's quiet for a second, and then what does she do? She screams, and what does she scream? "Mommy!" And I'm like, "I'm right here. I'm coming." Mommy, I'm like, no, daddy, daddy. No, I said, mommy. And you're like, am I picking her up? And she's like, mom. You know, and you take her inside. I'm like, ingrateful child. <laughs> Jeez. Ingrate. When she gets hurt, what does she want? She wants mommy. She doesn't want daddy. She wants mommy. And we're actually kind of like that. When we get hurt inside, we want anything but Daddy. We want anything but God the Father. And that's where we should be, running to the Father as Jesus did. In desperate times, Jesus prayed to his Father. Jesus prayed to his Father, and he taught us to do the same. Matthew 6, 9 through 10. This then is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I like to say it this way. God Let your world happen here on earth just like it is in heaven. Let this world be just like heaven. Father, do what it is you want to do in this world. We're not praying to some detached, impersonal force. May the force be with you. We're not not looking for karma, bringing good thoughts into the world, and so good thoughts will come back to me. We're praying to God the Father, Abba, Daddy, the creator of the universe, but the creator of you who knows you and loves you deeply. We're praying to our Father just as Jesus did. And Jesus said this about praying to your Father, that we have to come as a child. It's like a child asking a father for his food. Uh, Matthew 7, 9 through 11 says this, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will you give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to children how much more will your father in heaven give you good gifts to those, give good gifts to those who ask? I love how he says, yeah. and you then who are evil, thanks Jesus, I don't know about you, but my kids are always, always asking for food. Have you ever had that? Our kids do this, we'll sit down, we'll have dinner, we'll, we'll eat, and we'll have this great dinner talk, and we'll clean up everything, you know, I'll do all the dishes, we'll put everything away, and then you know what they say? Can I have something to eat? Not really. I'm a good father. <laughs> but when your kids ask you for food, whether you have kids or not, you can imagine yourself having a child or maybe a puppy if you don't have one. Um, they ask you for food. I mean, how many of you are like, here, here's a stone. Sink your teeth into this, right? Ah, I broke my teeth. Now we get to go to the dentist. Yay. Or, or you know, dad, can I have some bread? Here, here's a snake. Don't touch it if it rattles, Right. That's, I mean, we're, we're not, we're evil. I mean, we are broken people and we don't do this. We know how to give kids good stuff. And God is even better. God is even more holy and more pure. And he knows how to give good gifts. It's not in parents to give their kids something dangerous when they ask for food. And it's not in God to give us something horrible when we ask for what we really need. God is more generous than the most generous Father we can think of. The most generous father on earth and we can ever experience. God is more generous than this. God loves to give good gifts to his kids. So ask. So ask because you're asking a generous father. Rather than running from God, turn to God and ask who is generous and kind and loving. This is the prayer. It's it's a child asking his father for his needs. That's what we do when we pray. When we pray to God, we're not praying to something impersonal. We're praying to somebody very personal who loves you deeply and wants to give you good gifts. We're not talking into the air when I pray I'm not just talking to nobody, I'm talking to my generous Father who wants to give good gifts. So that's the first way Jesus revealed our Father in His teaching, in His, in his prayers. Second, He did it in His teachings. And what He teaches us in this is we live under the care of our Father. One of the lessons that His follower, that Jesus was always teaching His followers is that they days. That they should trust God with their daily living, like they're just their day-to-day lives. They need to trust God with how they, with everything, you know, their foods, their needs, their everything they need, their daily life. They lived under the care of their father. He taught this in Matthew six twenty-five through twenty-six. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you can eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet the heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Don't worry, Jesus says. How many of you worry? I got both hands up. I'm really good at that. I like look for reasons. I'll get my leg up on that one. I'm like, I'm not just a worrier. I look for reasons to worry. I'm like seeking. That's what I'm looking. That's why I look at the news, Right? We're looking for reasons to worry. We're looking for reasons to worry. If you are a worrier, Jesus is talking to you. Don't worry about your daily necessities because your father is caring for you. Jesus uses an illustration of a bird. I love birds. If God feeds the birds, won't your father feed you? If God feeds the birds, won't your father feed you? And not only that, you are much more valuable than birds to him. In another place, in Luke 12, uh, they took another time where he was teaching the same thing to people. Luke records it saying this. It says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. See, sparrows, they were sold two for a penny or five for two uh, for four pennies. Buy one, get one free. Let's get that. You guys follow that, Dylan? Let's say that again. Sparrows were sold two for a penny, or five for two, or five, two for a penny, or five for two pennies. Buy four, get one free. Yet not one of them, not even the free one, was missed by God. Not one of them was missed by God. God cares even for sparrows. How much more does He care for you? I hope that every time you hear a sparrow, that's one of the things I know. I'm like, I know it's summertime, or I'm on vacation. When I start hearing the sparrows. Every time we go to a coffee shop in another place and it's warm outside, the sparrows are landing on the ground and they're picking up the crumbs from people's scones and they're eating and they're happy and they're chirping away. Or I sit in my backyard in the summertime and these little guys are landing on the the fence and they're, they're chirping and they're happy and they're joyful and they're fulfilled and they're full because God cares for them. Because God cares for them. Every time you hear or see one of these things, I want you to hear in your own head, my God cares for me. My father cares for me. Jesus goes on to say that we shouldn't worry about clothes and tells us to look at wildflowers. I love wildflowers. God clothes them so beautifully. God made flowers so beautiful and their colors of purple and white and yellow and the hillsides are just gorgeous when you see them in full bloom. And God clothes the wildflowers in all of their splendor. How much better would he clothe you? Just think of all the time you'll save at TJ Maxx, right? Or at Costco, looking for the right outfit. If we let God worry about clothing us and providing for us. And Jesus concludes with this in Matthew 6, 30, 31 through 33. So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your father, your heavenly father, knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you. Your father knows what you need. He knows what you need, and he's on it. He's got it covered. Stop worrying. The father's got this. I hate to wear out a good illustration, but I'm going to do it anyway. As a kid, I struggled, our family struggled with money. Struggled very deeply with money. We experienced bankruptcy uh, twice, and uh, there was times where uh, we, would go to the, we had to go to the grocery store and they, my parents would use food stamps and my mother would stand there crying using these food stamps because we were so desperate. We were barely making it. My parents say, that even now, they're like, we tried to keep all that from you. We tried to hide it from you. We didn't want you to know that we were struggling. But I was a perceptive child and I picked up on it and I felt the stress in our house and I tried to figure out how we were going to make it too. I tried to, I'm like, well, I could eat less or we could not have this or we could do that. And even years later when we were doing well because I picked up on that, My parents would buy me something nice for Christmas. And you know what I'd say to them? I said, Thank you. Are you sure we can afford this? Are you you sure it's okay to have this? And even to this day, I struggle to have nice things because I'm like, I don't know if we should have this. I don't know if this is okay. I don't know if our finances could handle this. But God says, Don't worry. I still worry. Don't worry. How are we going to pay for this? Don't worry. If you're living within your means, God is going to provide for you. God's got this. And then I looked back at my life and I realized that, you know what? Even though I worried, even though my mother cried in the, the line as we paid for our food with food stamps, there's nothing wrong with using food stamps. If This is the situation you're in. This is what I learned. God's got this. We don't have the means to pay for this, but somebody does. God's providing for us. I never went hungry. I never had a time where a roof was not over my head or a bed to sleep in. And above all that, I never had a time where I was not loved and cared for. I had to learn, and I am learning, to trust God and to not worry and to allow God to be my good father and to have this. God's got this. Amen? I think this is a part of what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 18, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. We come to our Father and ask Him for what we need. We trust Him as a child trusts His parents. Our good Father, not our broken Father, not our messed up Father, but our good, good Father, our Father God. Lastly, He taught us to trust and see God as our Father in His stories. Jesus was so good with stories. He was always telling them, and there's lots and lots of stories, but I think the clearest story, and I want to have you actually turn to this one in Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bible with you, you are going to turn to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 onward. It's a very familiar story to us, but it's the story of the prodigal son. Now, I, this is one of the places where I think uh, that the translators of the Bible kind of blew it. They, they give us these little headings, and it says, the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus didn't title his parables, at least not that I'm aware of, and nobody's recorded that he has. Um, but reality is, this word prodigal can actually be applied to the son or to the father, the word prodigal, I got to find where my notes are. I just lost myself. The word prodigal actually means one who spends or gives lavishly or foolishly. So we'll see and as we read this story that it could go either direction. The, Luke's, uh, the book, the story is found in Luke fifteen eleven through thirty two. But a little background first: Jesus attracted and hung out with some pretty unsavory characters, right? Some people that other people wouldn't really hang out with—tax collectors and sinners. We still don't like tax collectors, but we're pretty all right with sinners in our culture. Tax collectors are still kind of creepy. So, Jesus hung out with these guys, and because of that, religious leaders were always offended by him. They were always offended by who he hung out with. He's like, This is this man, he's supposed to be holy, he hears from God, he clearly can do these miracles, and yet he's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, and that is very offensive to us. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them, they would say. And they couldn't understand why Jesus would hang out with riffraff, would hang out with the dregs of society rather than with them. And Jesus answered them by telling them three stories. And that's the three stories here in Luke 15. It's the story of the lost son, or the lost sheep, and the lost son, coin, and the lost son. And as I tell you the story of the lost son and the extravagant father, remember that Jesus is speaking to Pharisees who have just criticized him for the company he keeps, okay? So hold on to that idea as I tell you the story. So rather than read it to you, what I want to do is retell it to you. So it was his father who had two sons one day the younger son told his dad, I want my share of your fortune. I want it now. And that's the end of this. So basically his son was saying, I wish you were dead. I can't wait for you to die. Give me your money. Wow. Right? What would you say if your son said that to you? I'd say, right, here's your 25 bucks. That's your share of my estate because I've got $75. So all three of you get $25 each so long. No, that's probably not, not what I'd say. I'd say, forget you, and if you're not careful, I'm cutting you out of my will, right? Because that's, what, that's probably what we would do. Like That's just the rudest thing you could possibly say to me. But this father was different. He did what his son asked. He gave him the money. This is an extravagant father. The son took the money, and he moved far, far away from his dad as he could get. And he started living it up. He burned through the money like it was going out of style, and but it caught up with him eventually. One day he woke up. And he didn't have a penny to his name. He had no way of making money because he'd never had a job before. This is one of those spoiled rich kids that had never worked in his life. So who's going to give him a job, right? And he's going around and he's like, hey, you got any work? Well, what can you do? Well, you know, I can take your money and party. I'm good at that. You know, he's like, well, what what else can you do? Well, I don't really have any skills. I'm good at fashion. Can help you with your clothing. He didn't have any skills, so he couldn't find work, and so he kept looking and looking, and finally he found a job that required very little skill, slopping hogs. It's not exactly kosher for a good Jewish boy to work with hogs, but he was so hungry that he did the job, and he earned a little bit of money, and he was still so hungry that the stuff he was feeding the pigs started to look good to him, and he's like, mmm, tasty. He had literally hit bottom. You guys know that point? When you hit bottom... He hit hard, and fortunately hitting the bottom hard got his attention. And he realized that back home on the farm, the farmhands had it better than he had. His farmhands at his father's farm were treated better than he was treated. His farmhands at his father's farm had better food than he had. And he thought, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to apologize. I'm going to ask Dad to take me back. Not as his son, because I really don't deserve that. I have hit bottom. But just hire me on as a farmhand. He was betting that his father would be compassionate to him. And he wouldn't turn him away. He knew that his father was kind. He knew his father well enough to know that he could still go home. Even after all that he had done and all that he said, he knew that he was an extravagant dad. But he didn't know how extravagant. He didn't know how deep the extravagance of his father went. He didn't know that his father was back home and he came out on the front porch every day And he looked out on the horizon, and he had his little Bushnell binoculars there, and he'd lift them to his eyes, and he would look and search down the road as far as he could see, watching every day for his son to come home. He didn't know that he stayed up late at night wondering what had happened to him. He didn't know that his father worried consistently about how he was going to eat or how he was going to make his way. Then the the, the day came, and the son, finally, after his long journey, starts up the driveway and the father's looking down in this moment, and he sees with his binoculars, he sees the son coming, and the father doesn't wait. He sets his binoculars down, and he runs from the porch, and he runs down the road, and he runs and runs and runs. This is an old man who's dignified, and he shouldn't be running. I mean, it's like hazardous for his health. Everybody's concerned he's going to have a heart attack and die on the way, but he's so excited because his son is coming. He's so full of love, his son is coming, that he runs to his son, and his son says, Father, Father, you have to forgive me. Take me back as one of your servants. And that's as far as he got in his his apology. That's as far as he got. Because the servants are running up behind the father. trying to catch up to him and say, Sir, sir, is everything okay? The father reaches out and he gives that son a bear hug and he kisses his dirty cheeks with the pig slop and everything. And he steps back and he says, This kid needs new clothes. Get him some clothes. Somebody go get him some clothes. His... He's not wearing any shoes at all. He's been walking for miles in these shoes. Get him some shoes and the ring, the family ring. This kid needs to know he's my son. Get the ring and put it on his finger. This is my son who had thought had died. He's now alive. This is an extravagant father. Not only that, the father says this, go and get in the freezer and get the thick steaks. Get those two inchers that come from Montana, the Montana grass-fed beef two-inch T-bone steaks, get those bad boys out and fire up the grill because we are having a party tonight. This is an extravagant father, but not everybody was excited about it. Remember the guy had two sons. He had the good son who stayed home and he worked for him on the farm. He was coming in, in from the fields one day and he heard the music and the dancing going on. And he's like, hey, what's going on? His servant goes running past him with a tray full of Montana grass-fed bed, grass-fed steaks. And he sees the steaks and he's like, hey, hey, hey wait a minute, what are you, where are you going with those? Those are for a special occasion. And he says, your dad's throwing a party. Your your brother came home today. Your brother's back. The son was like, wait a minute. He became angry and he refused to go to the party. What was his dad thinking? His brother didn't deserve a party. He didn't deserve anything. He was the rebel who had taken the family money and squandered it, had blown it. He didn't deserve a party or a celebration or a homecoming, and there was no way the brother was going. When the father heard about this, heard about his older son's response, he went to him. He sought him out. He went into the house, went into his room, and, you know, the door's there, and there's the big signs on the doors that says, do not enter, and the music's blaring in there, and he's on the bed with his head underneath the pillow, and his dad pounds on the door, open the door, open the door. Finally, he goes and gets the key and unlocks the door himself, because that's what parents have to do, right? Many parents know about that. And they lock themselves in the door, in the bedroom. And he goes in there, and he says, he says to him, you better get out there. He says to him, you're being a jerk. Knock it off. He didn't say any of that. He says, come to the party with me, please. Come to the party with me. Please come with me. He doesn't correct him and say, you better change your attitude. You need to get your... Use your brain. It's your son. This is your brother. Somebody who loves you and you should love back. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, come to the party with me. And the older brother protests in classic child style. No fair. He blew all the money on prostitutes and booze and parties while I have been working here as a slave for you. I've never shirked my responsibility. Never even gave me Costco hamburgers to celebrate with my friends. And here you are pulling out the Montana grass bed beef. What's with that? He obviously doesn't think that his brother deserves a party. He doesn't deserve God's love or his father's love or generosity. And he clearly thinks that he does. He never ran away. He's never never been far from his father or far from his generous heart. But this is the important lesson for us in the church. You can be lost and be right here. You could be right there in the presence of your heavenly father and be so far away because you've never grasped your father's heart. You could be close to God geographically, but far from his heart. The older brother was not only estranged from his younger brother, but he was estranged from his father too. He lived in his presence, worked on his farm, lived in his house, and didn't even know him. The father answers his son this way. He says, my son... You are always with me and everything that I have is yours. Can you hear the affection in the father's voice? The father is expressing his love and generosity with his stubborn, self-righteous son. We have to celebrate and be glad. The brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. The father is appealing to his son, Please come to the party, understand my heart. What happens next? Jesus doesn't finish the story. He ends the story right there, kind of abruptly, with the father pleading for his self-righteous son to come and be with his party and to come and love his prodigal brother. You ever read one of those choose-your-own-adventure stories? I used to love those when I was a kid. You're like You're reading along, and it's like, for this ending, turn to page 37. For this ending, page 32. And you're like, you can have multiple endings of stories, and that's exactly what this is. Jesus wrote, Jesus wrote, They choose your own adventure story. He's asking the Pharisees to choose their own ending to the story. He's asking us to choose the ending as well. It's up to you. Who do you identify with in that story? Do you identify with a younger brother? Are you somebody who has run far from God, made a mess of your life, and now you're wondering if God will ever take you back? He will. He loves you. Like an extravagant father, in spite of all the things you've ever done, in spite of any terrible thing you could imagine, God is waiting with open arms, and He's watching for you. He's looking for you. His eyes are roving to and fro, to and fro across the earth for those who would come after Him. He's hoping you'll come home. He's your Father. This is the God I wish you knew—the heavenly Father that is looking for you. Or do you identify with the older brother? Are you someone who's been a good person or you're a church goer, right? You've been going to church. You've been doing the right thing every Sunday. We're raising our kids right. We're raising them in church. But you find yourself rigid, harsh, maybe judgmental, sometimes hateful, prone to outbursts of anger toward your own kids or toward your wife or toward your coworkers. You have little tolerance for the younger brothers of this world, the people who blow it daily. Oh, It's just one of those nasty center types. They're always getting drunk. Those college students are always getting drunk on Friday nights. Oh, they smoke, or they do pot, or they do these drugs. We just judge them because they're broken and sinful people. We can keep them at a distance. You just can't forgive those people for what they've done. Your dad for being mean to you as a kid. Your dad for being absent when you were a child. And you sure don't feel like you're at a party. You come to church, but you feel like you're just slaving away. I'm working for God. I'm working for you. But you don't come to the party because you don't have your father's heart. God, our father is offering you the very same grace, the very same love, the very same generosity that he offered to the younger son. That's the God I wish you knew. That's the God I wish you knew. This is an extravagant father a loving father, how much more will your father in heaven clothe you, feed you, care for you than for the sparrows or for the wildflowers because he made you intricately. He is pursuing you. He wants more than anything to win your heart. This God loves all of us, the good and the bad, the runaways and the stay-at-homes the irreligious and the religious, the atheist and the pious um, God-knower. He wants the best for all of us. He's our Father. This is the God I wish you knew. The God I wish you knew is an extravagant Father who loves us deeply, who cares for us constantly, over and over and over again, and He never misses a beat. He wants more than anything to be close to you. Do you know this guy?